and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. How is everybody feeling about the roadmap out of lockdown that was announced earlier this week? I have to say that I maybe set myself up for a bit of disappointment. I was hoping that a couple of the things that are coming in at the end of March might have actually happened more like the 8th of March. But it does at least feel like we're going in the right direction. We are recording this on Tuesday and we're still waiting to hear from the equestrian governing bodies at the time of recording as to exactly how the, the new rules will sort of relate into the equine industry. But it seems hopeful that we'll be able to get out and about with our horses before too long, which is great news. Our guest today is the US event rider Liz Halliday Sharp. She tells us about her first proper experiences in the eventing world when she was working for William Fox Pitt. It was a, a giant kick in the butt. I mean, I was not very quick. I hadn't had much experience sort of being a groom and stripping stalls and all that stuff. You know, I hadn't really done much of that coming from California. I'll also catch up with our news team to talk about welfare concerns transporting horses post-Brexit, the licensing of horse sanctuaries and regulation of equine dental technicians and musculoskeletal therapists. Finally, we'll hear from Supergroom Alan Davies about the best way to introduce young or hot horses to heading out to shows. People ask me, are there any tips as to what we do? You just, you have to know your horse before you start taking them away so you can all enjoy your young horses. So give your boots a final polish and let's get going. I'm delighted to welcome our podcast guest this week. Liz Halliday-Sharp achieved more international wins last year than any other rider in the world with nine victories and she was the leading US rider on points in 2020. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Ham podcast, Liz. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Now, Liz, I think that some of our British listeners will be quite familiar with your name. You've spent a lot of time competing over here in Britain, but of course you represent the US and you are now based there full time. Can you sort of summarise for us how you first came to to event in Britain and, and when that was? Yeah, I actually spent, um, well, most of my adult life in Britain until recently. I um, moved there in January of um, 2000, originally to just have a year away from college um, to work for William Fox Pitt. So that was sort of a, a big plunge to move from California to um, the UK in January. And um, yeah, the, the year just sort of morphed its way into um, basically nearly 20. And um, this has been my, 2020 was my first full season competing in the US, I suppose, yeah, since I left, which was kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what were you studying at college when you sort of uh, came over for, for a year that turned into 20? I actually um, was majoring in marine biology, which is something um, I'm still quite passionate about. In our house in England, we we, uh, we had built that house and we had a giant marine fish tank that divided the two rooms. And that was something I always wanted. And, um, you know, it's still something I'm passionate about. But uh, I suppose life has taken me another direction. And that's that's a good thing. Yeah. And you were based with William Fox Pitt to start with when you first came over. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was great. It was a, a giant kick in the butt. I mean, I was I was pretty, uh, I would say I was not very quick. I hadn't had much experience sort of being a groom and stripping stalls and all that stuff. You know, I hadn't really done much of that coming from California. Um, so I was pretty wet behind the ears. Um, 
I remember being not very good at it, if I'm honest. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was pretty slow. I got yelled at a lot by, uh, by old Jackie. Um, and, uh, you know, I started out just literally just hacking whatever I was allowed to hack. You know, I was just one of the grooms and I sort of did six months full time like that. And um, unfortunately, eventually uh, I'd had a skiing accident when I was doing some ski racing in college. And um, that came to, to bite me doing the stripping the stalls all the way to the floor eventually left me nearly crippled from the old accident I'd had on my back. So I, um, I ended up going off and doing my British Horse Society studies at Talland and I, I still came to Williams and um, just rode whatever they would give me to ride and I, I had a horse there and I did my own horse myself whenever I turned up and um, so I kind of ended up being there for nearly three years which was a, a brilliant experience and um, a really invaluable experience you know I have so much respect for that whole team and for William and for Jackie and all that she's done there and um, all that they taught me really they taught me to work hard and um, you know all the different things that I've learned about the way I do things with my own horses now in eventing and um, you know I ended up being able to ride a lot of William's best horses it was really exciting to be able to gallop Balancula back in the day and you know get to ride Tamarillo and things like that you know just just helping out but that was the opportunity I wanted I just turned up and said I'll ride anything and um, yeah I like to say I have so much respect for for them and who they are and, and I still do and um, yeah William, I would consider William a good friend still. Yeah, you mentioned Jackie Potts there, who is an absolute legend, William's head girl for such a long time and obviously has been so instrumental in teaching you a lot, as well as lots of other young riders and, and young grooms who've been based through that yard. And I was going to say, who were sort of the top horses at that time? And, and you named them in Balancula and Tamarillo. That must have been such a sort of golden era to be involved with that yard. Yeah, it was super cool. I mean, we had um, a, a lovely horse called Stunning was there as well, which probably many people remember. And of course, Moon Man. Um, and, and a bunch of others. It was it was really cool. And um, yeah, I still remember the day that Balancula actually arrived at the farm for the first time just as a novice horse. So it was um, kind of neat to watch that amazing progression and all the things uh, that William did. And, and he was he was so um, incredible at just knowing when a horse was going to be a top horse. And I remember he sat on the horse. It was probably that day, that first day he had him. And he said, this will be a four star horse. Yep, it'll be one. Obviously now five star, but um, and Lo and behold, it won Burley. So, um, uh, yeah, it was it was cool, and I would say it was a very character building experience. Like I say, I was not very good at, at the at the job, and it taught me to work hard and to sort of graft away and just get tougher, really. And um, I think that's why I stayed and really made Britain my home. And sort of, you have presumably taken a lot from William's system and from quite a British way of sort of producing horses and training horses, which is now fundamental to your system now, although you're based full time in the US. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I didn't really know anything when I came over there. I hadn't competed at a very high level and um, yeah, I just tried to learn as much as I could. And um, after I was with William, I actually ended up basing with Joe Meyer for nearly seven years when he was still based in the UK. And um, he was very instrumental to helping me um, push on and, and help to make me quite a lot better cross-country rider I think back then and um, and I got to help with a lot of the training of his horses as well I rode a lot of the young horses and um, that was another great experience for me and um, eventually I went off on my own in 2009 and um, now I would say sort of a all the things I, I learned that sort of in Britain and the British way I've, I've very much got my own system now and um, 
I've tried to bring that back to the US with me. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And you are interviewed in Horse and Ham magazine this week as well. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about for that interview that we touched on when we spoke for that piece last week was the fact that you have been a very competitive racing car driver during your life as well as riding horses. And I think we've got to got to touch on that a little bit. Can you tell our listeners and remembering they're not going to be racing car experts? So uh, like <laughs> me, you're going to have to give us the layperson's version. Tell us a little bit about that other side of your career. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was really lucky to do um, two really crazy and amazing sports that I that I love very much. And uh, my dad was into motorsport. That's always been his thing. And um, he uh, was also an instructor, a racing instructor for many, many years in the US, um, sort of at a, at a lower level, but he was a brilliant driver and very talented himself. And mainly he raced historic cars, so sort of older cars and sort of the club races. So like sprint type races, you know, 20 minute type races, which is how I sort of started out. And, and my dad taught me to drive the race car when I was 16 and I just got my license and um, we shared the car together for quite a few years, which was really, really neat experience. And he taught me so much. And um, eventually I was able, once I'd moved to Britain, I actually had the opportunity to sort of step up to some bigger, bigger races. And I raced a few Porsches in the British GT series and then eventually merged my way into sort of bigger sports cars and, and doing the longer races, um, six hours and up to 24 hours, um, which I ultimately did sort of all over the world, which was really amazing for a while there. I drove some really really cool, big, enormous GT cars and um, some really fabulous purpose-built prototype race cars, um, which were my, my real favorite. And I um, actually competed in seven 24-hour races in my career, which was pretty cool. Um, three of them being the Le Mans 24 hours, which was by far the probably the best thing I've ever done in my life, um, next to maybe Burley. <laughs> <laughs> and are you literally driving for 24 hours straight? Well, it's interesting. So at Le Mans, you're allowed to have three drivers and it's it's spaced out. You're never allowed to be in the car longer than four hours at a time, which I'm sure some people think it's like just driving up the M25, but it's actually in, intensely physical um, to the point where you're training very, very hard, both mentally and physically to be ready for the challenge of that. And um, the cars can be extremely hot in the cockpit. You know, back in the day, it was up to 50 Celsius you could get on a hot day. And, um, you know, heart rates were sort of normal. You could be up to 160, 175 just driving because the cars are so physical and G-forces. Um, so it was really a, a, it was a big challenge as a driver. And then obviously you're, the team is working so hard to keep the cars going through the night too, because you can imagine how hard the cars get beaten up. And so 24-hour racing is real strategy. It's about being clever as drivers. You're driving through rain and fog and everything and in the middle of the night and when you're tired and you've had no sleep and for me it was the the ultimate challenge and um was sort of always something happening it's not i'm sure people watch f1 and it's it's more um everybody's just racing and they're in the same type of car whereas in in the 24-hour races there's normally at least four classes of racing so there'd be two gt classes and then two purpose-built race car classes so you're always being passed or passing someone at all times in the race. Um, so it's it's a very intense experience and I absolutely loved it. I really, I miss that feeling. And um, yeah, driving at Le Mans in the middle of the night is something I'll never forget. It was one of the, one of the best experiences of my life for sure. Yeah, it sounds incredible. And we were also uh, touching in that mag piece on the fact that 
you've sort of got experiences from that side of your life that you can bring forward into into team situations and pressure and, and being competitive with horses as well. So there's a lot of, of, of crossover skills there. I mean, I hope so. Yeah, it was a, a extremely high pressure situation. And, um, you know, everybody is very much a team. You know, all the drivers have to work together and the, the drivers work with the mechanics too. You know, we're constantly on the radio with them in the race. And it's it's a real battle for everybody. And um, I feel like that that team experience I've had in really fighting through those high pressure races, I hope will help make me a better team player when I get a chance to um, ride on a championship team for the USA. Mm. And when we were talking there, you mentioned Burley as maybe being, you know, the second coolest thing after you've done after 24 hour races. So let's talk about Burley. It's the most recent British event on your FEI record. You were 15th there in 2019 with De Niro Z. De Niro Z, De Niro Z, what do you call him? <laughs> I call I call him a bit of both. I bounce between. Probably De Niro Z now that we're over here. <laughs> OK, we'll go with De Niro Z for our American listeners. But I think, it, you know, for the Brits, maybe De Niro Z. But anyway, he's a lovely horse. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and about how that event went for you yeah De Niro's a, he's an amazing horse I, I got him as a seven-year-old um, from Francis Whittington actually he was only down the road from us he was um, bought as a sales horse he'd done no eventing not really much of anything as a seven-year-old and um, he uh, we had an amazing uh, partnership so I, I luckily had some wonderful owners that eventually came on board with him um, Ocala Horse Properties who are dear friends of ours now who we also bought our farm in Florida from um, yeah, so I've been lucky to keep him, and, and he's just an incredible horse. He went from doing his very first event, and three years later, he actually did Le Moulin as a 10-year-old. So it's um, a pretty amazing trajectory up the levels. Um, oh, Burley's been a goal for a long time. It was actually my first Burley, which seems kind of crazy, but I think um, having mixed the two sports, motorsport and riding, sort of had me a little bit behind in some of my eventing goals. Um, but now that I'm riding full time, I finally got to make that happen. And um, yeah, it was, I mean, he was outstanding. He did a, a personal best five star test. I think he got a 28 there. And um, cross country, I'd hoped to be significantly faster than I was. And um, he got a little bit wowed by the sheer size and spread of everything. And so I had to look after him a little bit in the middle of the course. But then he really came back to me. And I mean, the horse fought like a champion round one of the toughest burlies I think that's ever been. And um, absolutely gave me everything he had to, to jump clear around that course, which was an incredible experience. And um, jumped a brilliant round on the last day and just had one rail, which I will say was probably my fault. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was very sad to not get the chance to come back, actually, um, last year because I'd sort of thought I had unfinished business there. I felt I could have done things better on the cross country and, and various ways that, you know, you learn. I think your first burly, you learn a lot and the horse certainly learned a lot. Um, so yeah, we'll definitely be back and, um, he's proven that he is a burly horse. Um, and, uh, I suppose first and foremost, we want to get ourselves to Tokyo this year, but, um, I'm sure hopefully the next year we might find ourselves at badminton and beyond. Yeah. And let's talk about this year and about Tokyo. Obviously it's, uh, we're still in a bit of a, a crazy situation, both here and in the U S with, with COVID and not knowing quite when restrictions might lift and different competitions might or, or might not go ahead. But at the moment, sort of looking at the Olympics, hoping that's all going to be on. What are your plans, Liz, for uh, sort of the start of the season and, and targeting that team place? Um, well, yeah, obviously that's sort of my main goal for him. And, I, and I'm hoping to, to line up Cooley Quicksilver, my younger horse, um, as a backup 
as well. And um, those horses will start competing um, at a little showcase event. That's that's a fantastic event in Aiken in March. And then they'll do um, two four stars sort of in the run up to Kentucky. And then I'm, I'm planning to aim De Niro for the five star at Kentucky and hopefully um, bring home a very good result there. I feel like I've not really had the best run at Kentucky as I have at some other five stars. So I'm, I'm hoping to um, have a really great result there this year. And then hopefully that will secure our place on the team for Tokyo, fingers crossed. Mm. And talking about some of your, your younger horses as well, and the great year that you had last year in the US, you had nine wins in international classes, as we said in the intro. Can you pick out one of those wins that was sort of particularly pleasing or satisfying for you and tell us about that? I mean, I suppose they're, they're, it's always great when you can win an FEI, and I was I was thrilled for all of the horses um, with, with what they did because each I think there was I don't remember how many different horses it was that won, but it was it was pretty cool to have them up through the levels. But um, definitely, I think um, sort of the win, both the win at Great Meadows and Plantation Fields on um, De Niro was was really special because there was uh, there were a lot of top riders there. Pretty much all of our top riders were at both events. Uh, certainly at Great Meadows and um, it felt, I'd say especially Great Meadows, felt like a really big competition. I mean, there were 75 people entered, I think. Um, it was our first FEI event back after the COVID shutdown and it just felt like a big, big European event, which was really cool. And I was the very, very last person to go um, of the entire round on De Niro because I had three horses in the class. So it was real pressure to go and put in the best test and to jump clear in the show jumping. And then of course, going into the cross country, knowing that if I could go inside the time, I could win. Uh, it was, it was good pressure. You know, I think that's, that's what makes us better and, and helps us learn and get better. And I think being under that pressure, of great meadows then made me ride better at plantation where he also brought home the win. So those were both, um, big sort of pivotal moments over here in the USA because I'd not, competed at either of those events ever in my life because I haven't competed on the East Coast in the summer ever until last year. So it was kind of fun. It was a good way to say, uh, say I'm here and, uh, Absolutely. and this is what we're doing. Um, and talking about the Olympics, have you ever been to an Olympics as a spectator? Do you have any kind of Olympic experience? I have none. No, I definitely have uh, no Olympic experience. I'm hoping that my, my first trip will be as a team member, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast and all the best for the coming season. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So I'm joined today by all three of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk. So hello, first of all, to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are things with you, Eleanor? Oh, it's all good. The sun's out. The horses have been out without rugs on. And I even saw those little pale bits, you know, that you get on top of the mud that mean it's drying out. And it has, <laughs> it has since rained and they've gone, but they were there. <laughs> I did see one of your grey horses out in the field looking quite muddy. And I had that like grey horse moment of like paranoia where I was like, what did you do? You took its rug off. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just sort of had to turn around and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I'm sure she enjoyed it anyway. We also have with us Lucy Elder, our senior news writer. Is the mud drying up with you, Lucy? 
It seems to be. I'm speaking too soon, you know. Thank, it's probably going to rain again in case it gets too dry. Yeah, no, mine's been out without a rug on as well. And she, oh, she so enjoyed it. She was rolling and squealing when she was rolling the other day. So I think she's feeling full of the joys of spring now. Uh, and we also have with us our news writer, Becky Murray, who is up in Scotland. She had the frozen pipe saga that we heard about last week. But um, is the weather improving even in Scotland now, Becky? I am celebrating. We've had sunshine the past couple of days and dare I say the mud is drying. So um, I can't wait to get back riding now that my school's defrosted. So I think the winter holiday is officially over for my girls now. Oh, excellent. And uh, hopefully no more miniature Shetlands escaping into gardens or anything like that. No, they've been behaving, although I, I think they're definitely finding lots of new grass. So they'll be getting their grazing muzzles on very shortly, I think. Oh, gosh. It's- it's one thing with another with horses isn't it like the next thing we'll be complaining about the ground being too hard I reckon <laughs> so coming to the serious news Lucy going to talk to you today first we're back on Brexit I'm sorry I don't know why you're the Brexit <laughs> person but um, the problems with transporting horses post Brexit are rumbling on what have you been focusing on this week I know it seems if it's not Covid it's Brexit doesn't it at the moment but um, I've been back looking at this and of course when I was reporting on it back in January. We're at a stage where people have been advised, you know, not to move horses if they could avoid it for the first couple of weeks of January while there were teething issues happening. And now we're pretty much two months on and we are kind of seeing what the reality of the situation is. And of course, things aren't hugely busy yet because it's still in the pandemic and there's still people sort of being cautious about moving horses uh, if they don't need to. But we are getting now into the start of the breeding season, the competition season, the international sort of top level competition season is starting to pick up. And we've been hearing mixed responses really um, with regards to delays at border control posts. So some people are finding it's fine. Others have found that they are having longer waits and essentially I'm looking at why that is and if there's anything that can be done to to sort out the situation really because you really don't want horses standing for hours on boxes if they if they don't need to be. Mm, That's a bit of a welfare concern isn't it? I know that when we were reporting on this before we were talking a lot about cost but this is not just about cost now this is also about as you say horses standing on boxes for hours and that's not not a good thing for welfare is it? No absolutely and it's not you know it's not transporters fault or things like that and it's just it seems to be that sometimes people are finding there's a bit of a bottleneck at these border control posts so I mean hopefully there'll be more border control posts opening soon that should hopefully ease it as as the situation starts to sort of get smoothed out but at the moment people no no one wants any horse stuck in a box for longer than they than they need to be so hoping this is going to get smoothed out sooner rather than later. Mm, And you just mentioned having more border control posts. What are the other things that might help to improve the situation? Well, I spoke to Jen Rogers of the British Horse Council this week and they, I mean, lots of people are doing a lot of work at at the moment behind the scenes. I keep seem to be banging on about that, but people really are trying to get this solved at government level. Um, And so they're trying to sort out the framework within, within that. And in terms of sort of real changes that might happen it's it's likely to be a long process i don't think there's going to be an overnight fix for this but we've got the eu animal health uh, new animal health law coming in in april and there's quite a lot of hope that under that sort of umbrella legislation there might be scope for for things to become a bit smoother the scope for a lot more paperwork to become digitalized in that and there's some definitely some hopes that they might be able to sort out a 
better arrangement that we have at the moment. Now we're a third country again. So, and of course, as Britain starts to open up its competition season as well, and of course, breeding season again, we're going to see people, they're already starting to field inquiries and people wanting to bring horses the other way, if that makes sense. So once once that starts to happen a bit more too, it, it's just, I think there's a lot of hope that within sort of that new legislation and as things are starting to get moving again, that there might be better ways of sorting it out. And going back to border control posts as well, at the moment, we don't have those up and running for horses coming from the EU to Britain. That's coming later this summer, sort of around July time. So I know very much that they're trying to take the learnings that we're seeing from the issues going from Britain to the EU. We're trying to take the learnings from those so that we don't repeat those coming the other way. So hopefully we'll start to see things improving slightly this summer, but it's very much that's not taking away from what a, what a challenge it is for people right now. And is there anything that our listeners can do to help if they've had good or bad experiences in the new system? Is there someone they can report these to? Yes, absolutely, they should. Um, British Equestrian is doing what it can to to now collate a lot of that evidence and information, and they are really asking for people to to send to send what evidence they have because they really want to get a bigger picture of what's happening, and then they can work with the British Horse Council and the other sort of bodies that are trying to sort this out. Um, and they can only do that if they've got evidence. So there are, there is a form on there. We've written a story, new story about it on our website, so you can find the information out from there or on British Equestrian's website. And there's a form you can fill in. But what they're saying is, you know, if if that's not what you have to hand, you know, everyone's got their mobile phone to hand. If if you've got videos or photos or information on that, then please send them send them in so that they can start to get a bigger picture. And hopefully that can help drive some change. There's also the government is holding an inquiry as well and evidence for that. The deadline's on the 17th of March. Again, you can find a link to that through our website. Um, and yeah, they're very much welcoming evidence because they want I think everyone wants the situation to to get better and if they don't know quite where the problems are then that makes it difficult so if the more evidence they can get hopefully the the better the outcome can be for everyone great well that's certainly something that we want to see improving over the coming months thank you Lucy Eleanor you've been looking at a case this week around a horse sanctuary I think it's a case that came to court earlier this month what's it all about yeah, this is the Whispering Willows, which people may um, be aware of anyway. Um, and it's finally come to court. 137 horses basically were taken away from the sanctuary. Um, and the owner was child- pleaded guilty to four offences under the Animal Welfare Act relating to 22 of these horses, and two of them had to be put down. Gosh. And there are sort of wider implications around this case for, for sanctuaries in general, aren't there? Yeah, so this is it's an issue we have reported on before, but this case sort of highlights why it's such a, a vital thing that sanctuaries and rescues are licensed and regulated because at the moment you can just set up a sanctuary. And although, of course, there are lots of very good small ones, it, it's not about that, they... The, the fear is that people will well-meaning people will set up sanctuaries and rescues and, and maybe not quite have the knowledge and, and the skills and funds they need to look after the horses. So it can then end up that these horses, as, as was quoted by World Horse Welfare, end up going from the frying pan into the fire. Um, and so the, there are real calls for sanctuaries to be licensed and regulated so that, you know, there's confidence they're looking after the horses as they should be. Mm, and and also for the public, I guess, that they would know then if they gave their money to a sanctuary that it was going to one that was doing a good job. Yeah, exactly, because that's the other thing that, you know, if 
if all equine and all charities are reliant on public donations so it gives the public confidence they're they're donating to um you know a reputable organization mm. Interesting one there. Thank you, Eleanor. Becky, coming to you last but not least, you have been working on a story about regulation of paraprofessionals, not a word I was familiar with before this week's news pages, but always keen to, to expand my vocabulary. What are paraprofessionals in this context and, and what sort of regulation is being discussed? So paraprofessionals include equine dental technicians and musculoskeletal therapists, such as physios. And the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, known as the RCVS, is running a consultation asking for feedback from the public and other professionals on recommendations for changes in which these professions are governed. Essentially, this could mean in the future that paraprofessionals and vet nurses would fall under a single umbrella regulated by the RCVS. Okay, and if that all comes off, what would be the advantages of that? Well, the RCVS said this is about giving clarity and assurance to the public around these sort of paraprofessional titles and really preventing untrained individuals claiming they're able to provide services that they shouldn't be. Okay. And are the paraprofessionals themselves in favour of that? Absolutely. Uh, the British Association of Equine Dental Technicians say this will provide much needed clarity and ensure standards are being met. And the Register of Animal Musculoskeletal Practitioners are also very much in favour. Now, the consultation closes on the 23rd of April, so it'll be really interesting to follow up on this and hear what the outcomes are. Hmm, okay, great. Well, we'll be following that story later in the year, no doubt. Thank you, Becky, and thank you to Eleanor and Lucy too. The Horse and Hand podcast is currently supported by NAF. Five Star Magic from NAF is a natural karma with a difference. Proven to increase trainability, Magic gives you and your horse the confidence to truly enjoy every moment and take on new challenges. Believe in Magic. Now we're going over to Alan Davies, groom to Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin, for some of his invaluable advice. Over to you, Alan. Hello, everyone. In this episode, we're going to touch on the subject of handling young and hot horses, going away to shows and things. People ask, quite often ask me, are there any tips or hints as to what we do? Um, and I think you just you have to know your horse before you start taking them away. The like the the young ones when we we start taking them to local shows, and you need to know them before you start taking them away. Practice loading and unloading onto the lorry at home. Make sure you wear a, a hard hat. Make sure you have gloves on. I can't bear seeing people um, handling young, inexperienced horses without gloves on. Um, and don't be frightened to put a bridle on um, and um, a lunge line. I quite often will load and unload the young horses with a bridle on and a lunge line just in case anything. If they're going to jump off the ramp um, and be all excited at a show, then you've got more control if anything happens. I tend to try and when I get to the show, just let them come down the ramp quietly stop and have a look around and I'll take them to a quiet corner of the car park or find somewhere to graze them and just give them a little walk around and, and let them have a look um, at what's going on and don't make a big deal about it. 
gives them a little walk. I mean, sometimes, not often, but sometimes there's places you can lunge them. If your horse is good on the lunge, even if it's just to walk them on the lunge, not, not let them bark and create and um, be silly on the lunge, but just let them have a leg stretch and a walk. So nothing's a big deal and just keep everything as calm as possible and not let things get out of hand, stay on top of things. Um, with like the big horses, you just have to make sure when you get to the show or when you're at the show, um, there's not, I like not too many people around. Make sure when you unload them and you're getting them ready, um, if they can be big and hot, make sure there's not too many people around and space around the lorry. There's nothing that's going to get in the way like mounting blocks, steps, you know, skips, forks, brooms. Make sure everything's clear, tidied away, no doors open that they can crash into doors and things like that. Uh, sometimes we'll just walk around the lorry. If there's nowhere, um, if there's no quiet space or anything, just walk around the lorry. If they know the lorry and they know that area, then just walk them around the lorry, keep them moving until the rider's ready to get on. And again, don't be frightened to maybe put a lunge line on. I will hold them on a lunge line at the show and you can be ready for anything then, I think. If you, you, feel, if you feel in control and ready for anything and then that vibe will get through to the horse and then things will be a lot calmer, um, I always find. And I like things um, calm at the show. If we're staying away, if we're taking the young horses away to their first show and then I, I like everything quiet in the stables, no fuss or bother, I don't like too many people around, they need to just be in the stables, be calm, keep everything as normal as possible, have their normal hay and, and their water buckets and everything with them so they know everything and their feed bowls and everything, and they normally have their usual feed bowls so they know everything around them. Um, and then hopefully it won't be too stressful so that your first time away taking a young hot horse doesn't become a huge drama either for them or for you because you don't want that. You want everything to be calm and nice and a good experience. You know, with the, with the young ones, we'll maybe take them to um, a local show walk them round and maybe work them, but don't, don't actually compete them and then take them home again and make sure it's all a nice experience, not, um, not too stressful for anybody. Um, and sometimes I'll plait them up and sometimes they just go and work normally and then come home again. So it, it depends if you, if you can, and it's difficult at the moment, but if you can take them for a little trip out, make sure you're, really prepared with everything and you've got everything all ready get to the show ground tack them up walk them around and then um have a nice experience put them away again and then take them home and then hopefully that will make your first show experience um less stressful so i hope that helps i hope there's a few hints and tips in there and um that you can all enjoy your young horses Thank you, Alan. Alan will be back next week to talk about fussy eaters and how we can persuade them to clear up their grub. We'll also be talking to Olympic silver medalist Nicola Wilson and, of course, catching up with the latest news. 
Thank you for joining us today on the Horse and Hand podcast, currently supported by NAF. I hope you're enjoying it and please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. See you next week. The Horse and Hand podcast is a Media Cage production.